shared with you a scripture and he talked about Jesus mealtime habits, asking the question, who would Jesus eat with if he had a choice to have a meal? And I think it revealed a lot about God's heart and a lot about where our heart should be. Today I want to kind of talk to you about the effects of that afterwards. Because when you begin to engage relationally with people that no one else has engaged with, that can be a challenge to your reputation and it can be a challenge to the way you think. And I want us to see that clearly today. Math, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 2, verse, starting with verse 18, says this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast? while he is with them. They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the Word of God. I'm just humbled every time I teach your Word, every time I read your Word in my devotionals, every time I hear your Word spoken, because you chose to preserve these stories, and pass them down to us. So here on November 1st, 2009, Lord, that we would get insight and strength and know Jesus better. Father, what a privilege that is, and we love you today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, for nine years I worked with a man named John McKenzie, and in the Paul and Timothy type of mentor, mentoring relationship, John was my Paul. And he still is my Paul today. We worked hand in hand for nine years and God blessed our ministry. One time we were on a fast together. And in the middle of this fast, we had a business meeting with a wonderful Christian lady. Uh, She was our graphic designer. Now I know this is going to be really hard for our teenagers to believe or anyone who is under the age of 25. But in the mid-90s, most people did not have email. I know that's hard to believe. And so to exchange files, you actually had to do something. You actually had to get into a car, meet up, and look physically at a piece of paper. This, this is hard for you to understand, but this was the case. So this woman was a wonderful Christian lady, but her husband wasn't saved. And we got to know her husband, and, and he enjoyed interacting with us. So in the middle of this fast, we met up with her and... It was about lunchtime, and we were working on a project together. And all of a sudden, a door swung open, and her husband walked in with two huge bags of food. And he looked at us, and he said, Ready for lunch, guys? And in that moment, we froze. We looked at his two big bags. We looked at each other. And full of faith, we said, Sure, let's eat. And we went, and we ate. And that story is still a funny story as we reflect on today. Because that particular day, even though it was important that we were fasting, our unsaved friend was more important than the fast that we were undertaking. And you know, in Jesus' day, fasting had lost a lot of its effect. It had kind of become a dead ritual. In the Mosaic Law and the Torah, It only requires us to fast one time, and that's on the Day of Atonement. So the law of Moses only required you to fast one day of the year. 
But as time went on, from the time of the judges until the time of Jesus, people would fast whenever they would repent. And, and the prophets and the judges, they would call upon the people to go through periodic fast when they were repenting. But despite that, despite that fast, it had become a religious uh, type of rule for the Pharisees. The Pharisees would fast two days a week. And two days a week they would abstain from all food because that was their habit and that was their ritual. John the Baptist came along and he began to share a message of repentance. And so, most likely, John the Baptist and his disciples also fasted two days a week. And it just so happened that on one of those two days of the week, when they were fasting, Jesus and his disciples were doing exactly what Pastor David talked about last week. They weren't fasting. They were feasting. They were with sinners. And they were engaging with people who weren't part of the Christian religious, or not even Christian, but the religious uh, rules of that day. And you can almost hear the envy and the self-pity in verse 18. Look at that question with me. When they said to Jesus, they said, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? You see, one of the problems the religious leaders and even John the Baptist and his followers had is a problem you and I have sometimes. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down today. Is this. We are often aware of the rules, but not the reason. Write that down. That's number one. We're aware of the rules, but not the reason. Now, Jesus was not against fasting. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, when he... It talks about the Sermon on the Mount. He, he begins or gives the Sermon on the Mount. He gives specific rules about fasting and, and specific steps we should take. And I just want to tell you that I believe in fasting. Fasting is a discipline that I participate in on a regular basis. And there's going to come a time when we'll I'll teach you more about fasting and I look forward to that. I think it's a, an important thing to be part of your life. But here's the problem. If you fast and you forget the reason you fast, then what good is it really doing? You see, the reason people would fast is to get closer to God. That's what repentance is. Repenting from their sin, turning from their sin, and turning to God. As a nation, turning from sin and turning to God. You see, fasting is supposed to connect us to the Lord. It's supposed to connect us to the heart of God. That's why it exists. And if it just becomes some kind of a, a, a discipline with no meaning behind it, we've lost the purpose. Now, now look at the irony happening in this scripture. This is unbelievable to me. The very people who are fasting two days a week, the very people that are abstaining from food in order to be close to God, they don't even recognize that God in the flesh is right there among them. They totally missed it. Even though they were fasting because they were supposed to want to be closer to God, they completely forgot and overlooked who God was and where God was. It was Jesus. He was right there among the sinners. How many times do we do that too? When we remember the rule but forget the reason. Not too long ago, our 
I had a woman that I respect deeply come to me. And she asked me a question. She said, Aaron, who is the wisest woman in the church? When she asked me that, I did something that I rarely do. I rarely laugh out loud. But I just blurted out a laugh. It just kind of came out because to me that was a trick question. And I was looking for secret cameras here. The wisest woman, there is only one answer. Beth Allison. She is infinitely wise. And it's true, honey. It's true. So I just laughed out loud. And I I thought it was so amusing. But I didn't realize that my friend was moving, as I was laughing out loud, she was moving into a deep level of grief. And she was asking my help for a counselor. And what happened is I heard her words, but I didn't hear what she was trying to communicate to me. And she was so gracious, I apologized, and now we've laughed about it ourselves, and the Lord worked in that situation. But I missed it. I mean, I totally, I heard what she said, but I didn't understand what she was trying to say to me. And that's how it was with Jesus in verse 19, because he made a very bold statement. He said, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot do so long as they have him with them. With them. Now, the bridegroom here, that, that doesn't sound like a really masculine word, but it is talking about a male who is either engaged or who is newly married. So that was a very beautiful word, a very desirable word to be a bridegroom. It means you either are about to marry your bride or you've just married your bride. And Jesus says in verse 19, very bold statement. He said, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? He compared himself to the bridegroom. And by doing so, he clearly stated, I am the Son of God. I am, I am God in flesh. I am the Messiah. And people totally missed it. You see, God had always compared himself as a bridegroom or as a man awaiting a wife or having a wife. He said in Jeremiah 31, I am a husband unto them. When the prophets begin to talk about Israel who had, who had strayed from God, they used the, for, they used the, the term fornication and adultery. The, the people of Israel were very, very familiar with the bridegroom analogy. At one time, God had said to the prophets, said, I am going to divorce you as you're my wife because of your sin. This relationship was very clear. I love what Isaiah 62 says. Isaiah 62 verse 5 said this, As a bridegroom delights over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. There's so much depth to that statement. There's so much depth to what that means. But here was the issue. In that context, the people were very aware of the custom, but they weren't aware of the Christ. Write it down if you're taking notes. To be aware of the custom too, but not the Christ. Often we use the term Jesus Christ, like like Christ is Jesus' last name, you know, like Aaron Allison, Beth Allison, Jesus Christ. And we forget 
what the word Christ means. The word Christ means Messiah, chosen one, anointed one, the holy one, the personification of God among us. That is Christ. And here it was, they were aware of the custom of the bridegroom waiting for the bride or taking care of his new bride. But when he said that question, they were totally unaware that Jesus was saying, I am that bridegroom. I am the Christ. Christ and his disciples, they they were like on their honeymoon, so to speak. They were newly married. And they were healing people. They were proclaiming the gospel. They were meeting with sinners. They were basically abolishing the old law that didn't work. And they were releasing a new life of love and truth. And here they were rejoicing. Yet, the religious leaders of the day, and even John the Baptist and his disciples, were so focused on the rules that they didn't see the greatness of what was happening with the bridegroom. But Jesus, when he came and he said, I am the bridegroom, and when you're with me, you celebrate. He was saying, this is different. Things are different now. I have come and it's time to celebrate. He was saying as if, as, as if with me here on earth, we are at a wedding. We are at a party. We are rejoicing. And that wasn't something he just talked about. That's something he lived and demonstrated. He did it with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He did it with Matthew. He did it with the prostitutes. He did it with those who had leprosy. He sat down with them and shared a meal and said, this is a new day. The kingdom of God is among you. The party is here. The wedding has started. I am the bridegroom. They were aware of that custom, but they missed the Christ. Let me ask you this. Is it possible? Is it possible that we are so into religion and we're so into church and we're so into denominationalism and so into our ministry that we can know the rules and we can know the customs, but we can miss the presence of Jesus in our lives. We can miss it. We can miss the bridegroom. We can miss the moment. We're totally unaware of what God is wanting to do in our life and His activity and His rule. Friday I had a wonderful day. I had several significant meetings, a significant lunch. And in the afternoon, I was meeting with one of my accountability partners, Pastor Clay Baggett. We, we met for coffee, and as we do on a regular basis. The day had gotten away from me, and parents' night out was starting at 6. So in my mind, I thought, this is great. I'd already arranged this with Beth. I'm going back to the office. I'm going to work on this sermon here. Um, and meet me at 6. We'll go on our date. I was going to use my time wisely. As I left the coffee shop, I just couldn't drive home. I couldn't do it. Because I had about an hour left, hour and a half left. And I knew that at my home, in the front yard, I had two little boys that wanted to throw the football. I had a little girl that wanted to play in the leaves. And I realized that my children are age 9, age 7, age 6. And I was going to preach a lot of sermons over the next 30 years. But I wouldn't have many more afternoons when they wanted to play in the front yard. Because guess what? Teenage years are coming. Driver's license. Hobbies. 
other friends. The time. The time is very valuable. The time is very short. You know, Jesus, He said that there in verse, verse 20 when He said, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. He didn't say don't ever fast. He didn't say fasting is stupid and you, I can't believe you guys are fasting anymore. He just said that day will come. Just like I know that day will come when my kids are teenagers, my kids will leave. The day is going to come when the bridegroom will be taken. And it's true. It was a, a totally in-the-moment situation because as you know, Jesus went on to die a horrible execution. And then He was raised from the dead. And then He went back to heaven. But that moment, that time frame, that was a special time for the disciples and Jesus together. And I wanted us to think about this for a second. Because I know in that day, the religious leaders, they knew what the date was. They knew what the time was. And they knew the prophecies. And they knew what to look for. But they totally were unaware unaware of who was among them. Here's the last thing I want you to write down. We often are aware of the date, but not the moment. We're aware of the date, but not the moment. You live very unaware lives. Can you imagine those religious leaders when their afterlife came and they realized they were so busy being religious and so into their religion and customs and prophecies that they missed the very presence of Jesus in their lives. Could you imagine what that realization could have been? Jesus, another time in Luke chapter 12, another passage, He spoke to this very issue too, and He said, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. When a south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Isn't that interesting that the religious leaders probably took so much pride in their ability to interpretate the text and interpretate the historical context that they couldn't even be aware of the presence of Jesus right there with them? And I just want to ask you this question. Are you living a life of awareness? Because as a follower of Christ, I don't want you just to live week to week, month to month, year to year, and just to be like zombies walking around. I guess that's my only Halloween reference today. Spiritual zombies, I guess. I want you to live a life of reflection. Where you're really living in the moment and you're having devotions with God and you're feeling His presence. Where, where you're having a healthy relationship with your spouse or with your parents or with the children in your life or even your roommates or close friends. And you're aware of the moment. You're aware of the season and you're aware of the time. That, that you're aware of your words. Knowing that careless words will destroy those around you. But when you speak words very wisely and well, that you have a strategic influence in someone's life. To be aware of 
the activity of God in your life. Because can I tell you that God is always working in your life. It's not a question of whether or not God is working in your life. It's a question. The question is, are we aware of His activity? Are we seeing Him clearly? Are we living the type of life that He's called us to be? Some of us live a life with no perspective, no reflection, no sense of awareness about the moment. And I say, as a believer in Christ, let us live life in full awareness of the gravity of each moment, the importance of our words, and the activity of God in our life. I want to invite Penny and Jonathan to make their way up here. Can I just tell you that the bridegroom has come to your life. The bridegroom is in your life right now. He is in your life. Jesus has established His rule and established His reign and established Himself within you. And this is a time of your spiritual life for joy. This is a time for peace. This is a time for rejoicing. And this is a time spiritually of feasting. Feasting on the Lord and how great He is. And feasting on the greatness of His name and who He is. You know, of all the things... You know, I talked earlier about how God gives us power to be wealthy and God gives us power to be successful. But of all the things I could pray for you is not for wealth or earthly success, but for a real relationship with Jesus Christ. To know Him. To know His love, as our slogan says. Because we can't share His love if we don't know His love. We can't share what we don't have. And He wants to know you. I'm going to invite our ushers this time to begin to prepare for communion. And as they're positioning themselves, I have two questions. Two questions for you because I want to make sure you're fully aware today. Fully aware. The first question is this. Are you aware of your eternal destiny? If you were to die today, would your eternity be in heaven or in hell? Because some of you don't know. And I'm not the type that try to convince people to go into hell every week because that's a great way for preachers to feel good about their preaching. Um, in fact, I think the better I get at preaching, the more sure you are of your salvation. Uh, you know, the, the, it's easy to, to just convince you're going to hell every week. But if you don't know, I want you to know today. I want you to know now. There is no reason for you not to know from this day forward whether your destiny is in heaven or hell. So that's the first question. Are you aware of where your destiny is? And here's a second question. Could it be, could it be that some of you who are Christians are living a life completely unaware of God's activity in your life? You're just, you're just disconnected. You're, you're disconnected from Him. You, you know He loves you and you love Him, but you're totally disconnected from Him. It's time to connect with Him right now and to open the eyes of your understanding to be aware of how great His power and His love is for you. We're going to have a time of personal reflection. As Penny leads us and sings for us today, the ushers are going to pass out the elements. I want you to hold those. Before any of us take those elements, I'm going to come back. We're going to pray together, and we're going to answer those two questions to make sure we're fully aware today. Let's reflect as we hold the elements together.
tears fall I'm still your child Put down my defenses Lay down my pride Love and forgiveness Flow deep and wide So I run to you And surrender all As I lay down my life Pick up my cross What a joy it is to give my principles that would help uh, create family discipline because those principles will be something you can share with your friends, your neighbors, or perhaps in the future if the Lord allows you to be a primary caregiver. And you never know too, uh, you you might not be a parent now, but you never know when God's going to put you in a position to be a caregiver. And maybe it's not in a traditional, as a traditional parent, but uh, there's reasons why God exposes us to certain teaching. I do want to just make note, we have some friends here. My mom is sitting in the back, and her friends, and, and my friend too, Tony and Aida Alonzo from San Antonio, Texas, are here on vacation. And Tony, there they are waving. So for them to spend some of their vacation to hear me talk, man, I am very grateful. But they're, they're having a great time, and, and they have been lifelong friends with my mom since her childhood. So it's a blessing have them here. Well, um, I had this dog one time, a little, little small puppy. It was in my early 20s, and I've noticed that that people a lot of times before a child comes a dog, if you just notice that, you know, a young lady gets a dog, and then before they know it, they have a child, and then they don't want to have anything to do with that dog. That's just a trend. I'm not saying that trend happened to my house, but I'm just saying that's a trend that I've noticed. I had this little dog that I liked a whole lot. But, but this dog acted up all the time. And, and a friend of mine told me one day, he said, Aaron, you know what the problem is with your dog? He said, you love that dog too much. I said, what do you mean? He said, you love that dog too much, and you never discipline the dog. And from that point on, I began to assert the normal discipline you do to a pet, and things improved. Things improved in the house. Things, the dog liked me better. Now, before I go any further, I am not going to compare... Discipline with your animals with kids. So don't be worried here uh, because that's the end of that analogy. There's a breakdown in every analogy. But, I, but I, I tell you that story because I thought a lot about what he said. You love that animal too much so you won't discipline it. And I don't really think that's true because the more I think about it, the truth is this, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down your first blank. If you don't discipline, you don't love. If you don't discipline... 
you don't love. Many times we have the wrong, the wrong perception on that. We think because we love our children so much that to put any restrictions or to give them any consequence or to, um, to negatively affect their life emotionally, even temporarily, uh, if we love them, we won't do that. And the truth is, is that if we really love our kids, that is when we'll discipline them. So what I want to do is I want to journey uh, through some scriptures right here at the beginning, and we're going to look at several scriptures that's going to give us a biblical perspective on discipline. And then we're just going to talk about some practical steps, some observations I've made. I want to also share with you a couple observations that Focus on the Family have shared. And so let's look at the scriptures, and I'm going to start in Revelation 3.19. At the end of time, the Lord reminds us, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So God's discipline plays a very important role, and his discipline is a manifestation of his love for us. Therefore, we know as we're made in God's image, even though we don't enjoy discipline, and it's never fun to give out discipline, discipline is a manifestation of our love. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. The truth is this, is that a manifestation of a natural relationship between a parent and a child, or a caregiver and a child, is that which has disciplines. Proverbs 19, 18. We're going to, the, these scriptures are listed in your notes, so we're going to go through them with speed because of the shortness of the hour. Discipline your son, for in that there is hope. In that, there is hope. And I agree with that. I believe that as the more we have appropriate, good discipline, the more hope we have as a nation as we are people who are under discipline. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14 says, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with the rod, he will not die. Punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. Proverbs 29:17, Discipline your son... And he will give you peace. He will bring delight to your soul. Aren't those scriptures just rich and true? And I just feel swelling up within us a yes, you know, we, that we know this. We know that those children who have been under discipline and who understand consequences to their actions and who have had parents and guardians and leaders in their life, they just respond to life better and they, they, they are positioned to succeed. Now, let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. And if you have your Bible, I want you to take time to, to go to Hebrews chapter 12. Because Hebrews chapter 12 is just a, a, a beautiful scripture that brings out the heart. I'm supporting the point that we're, we're starting as our foundation is that, that if you don't discipline, you don't love. And we're going to see that the heart of God for us is manifested in his discipline. And one of the, one of the ways he loves us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten that the word of encouragement that addressed you as sons. My sons, do not, make the, do, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when He rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those He loves and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. Think about that for a second. The Lord disciplines those He loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Seven, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? And that, that question just jumped out of the page to me. 
And the proper relationship between the father, between the parent, is that one of discipline. And, and, and really, a father is not just someone uh, that is, is a position. It is a, there's a spirit of fatherhood that comes on people, and one of that ways that's manifested in discipline. So, verse 8, if you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No, no uh, discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That scripture, that passage just really, really stood out to me as, as it relates to our subject tonight. If you're taking notes, we're going to quickly go through some points before we go to prayer and we go pick up all of our little creatures, little beautiful human beings in, in their outfits tonight. The first thing is this, is discipline is dynamic. And so it changes. It changes from situation to situation, person to person, child to child. One of the things that really bothers me when people begin to speak on discipline is people begin to uh, create these rules that, that seem universal and applies to everyone at all times. And I think that when we do that, then we forget why we discipline. We discipline because we want a certain outcome. We don't discipline just for the sake of discipline. So in other words, uh, there's not just this standard rule that applies to every person at all times, at every age, in every situation. God's called you to lead your family. He's called you to lead your children. He's called you to have influence on that niece, that nephew, that grandson, that granddaughter. <laughs> Excuse me. And that, that kind of discipline is dynamic. It changes from kids to kids, child to child, from situation to situation. One of the things that children do, they try to sabotage that in this. Children love to say, well, that's not fair. You, you know, that's not fair. You punished her for this, but you're not punishing me for that. And children want to compare us, and they want that kind, of, that kind of equitable punishment. And what happens then is we begin to change rules for, we begin to have these standard rules for all the kids. And I'm not talking about inconsistency, but I'm talking about when the, the rule itself becomes more important than the outcome. And we've lost the heart of discipline. And you're right. Discipline is not fair. Discipline is not fair to the one being disciplined. But for the one who God has given the wisdom and God has given the insight that he has given that certain amount of authority. So the first thing I want to talk about is discipline is dynamic. It's age appropriate. Discipline needs to be age appropriate. And at this point, I want to venture off a little bit from my notes, and I want to share with you what Focus on the Family talked about this. I went, and you can find this online on Focus on the Family, and we need to understand that, that there's appropriate times to discipline children for different reasons. And I'm going to give you some of their suggestions, and I find them to be good suggestions and appropriate for that. And that's one of the reasons we need to be aware of this when we have multiple uh, children that we are giving discipline to. Now, uh, there's something, if these aren't your notes, you could write them down. For, for infants who are birth to 18 months, if you give them a whole lot of discipline, they don't understand. They don't have the reasoning to understand. And so they would suggest you do distraction. They're doing something wrong. You distract them and redirect them to something more positive so they would understand that. Moving on, time out. How many in here have 
have ever used timeout? Do we have any timeout people? Timeout, according to Focus on the Family, is effective from about age two to age eight. Just, again, this is not a hard, fast rule. This is just a generalization. Timeout from about age two to age eight. They would suggest that you make it short. They suggest one minute for every year of your child's age. Also, one of the most important things about timeout is to make sure don't give your kids time out when they have access to TV and video games and books. Uh, that, that really defeats the purpose. Uh, that's, uh, in fact, that could be rather enjoyable to them. Uh, but put your child in time out and, and watch the clock. We do that at our home. We watch the clock. One of the things that Focus on the Family suggested, and uh, I plan on implementing this soon, uh, is, uh, is to have a, a, a clock that you could actually, let's say you're going to put on three minutes or five minutes, and wait till the bell rings, and if the child gets up from the chair, start it back over again. So that's just one of the ways that timeout can be used from about age two to eight. Keep it, keep it reasonable, keep it short, and this is my favorite, and I believe this type of discipline is the most effective, removal of privileges. And this starts, according to uh, Focus on the Family, from about 18 months and older. They can go all the way up into the teenage years. And this is finding that one thing your child is going to miss. I mean, that one thing that's going to cause pain. I mean, children can, they can develop, especially boys, a, a resistance to a, a spanking or a swat. But if you find that special Star Wars toy, you find that special video, it is painful to them. And so find something they'll greatly miss, and, and this, of course, will differ according to the ages. Natural consequences. This is another form of discipline. Natural consequences. If the child refuses to eat and doesn't want to be a part of the family dinner and you send them to the room, guess what? They might go hungry that night. They're not going to die that particular night, but they'll figure out if I don't eat when my family wants me to eat and how they want me to, then I might uh, experience the natural consequences of, of uh, missing that meal. Logical consequences. Of course, that's the old rule. Uh, if the child is throwing the ball inside, he breaks something, make the child pay for it. Make them work off the value of that. And, of course, there's spanking. Spanking is dynamic from family to family, but according to Focus on the Family, they, they believe that from about age 2 to age 6 are the most effective years of spanking. And, and beyond that, there's a diminishing return from that. None of those things I just mentioned to you are rules uh, that are, are hard and fast rules, but they're guidelines to help you put your mind around discipline. Because one of the things that need to happen, if you're married, you need to be on the same page with your spouse. You need to agree beforehand on how you're going to discipline, when you're going to discipline, and why you're going to discipline. Children will exploit that division and, and will, will split, split the, the, the couple on that discipline, and that could be a very negative thing. Personality appropriate. That's the next thing under discipline is dynamic. Find out how, uh, you know, how your child responds. And each child is going to respond differently to different ways we do that. Now let me give you some principles of discipline as we kind of veer off uh, what we found from Focus on the Family. And here's just some observations that, that I just have seen that, that have helped me as a parent that I've seen working with uh, teenagers. I was a youth pastor for 10 years and did lots of family counseling. Lots of parents came in with their kids, and we worked through that type of stuff. And from observation, here's just some simple things that are not going to be earth-shattering, are not going to be anything you've probably never heard before. But as C.S. Lewis says, we need to be reminded 
more than inform. We need to be reminded of the good things we need to be doing. Principles of discipline. Number one, and here's the most important one. I, I mean, I think it is number one. Consistency. Consistency. This is a mistake I, I, I see over and over. I hear over and over. I see it in the hallway back, right here in this own, our own church here. And for whatever reason, we as parents feel like if we give some kind of threat, we hope that the threat is big enough and strong enough and effective enough to deter the behavior. And when the behavior is not deterred, then we don't want to give the consequences that we have threatened. And this is where it takes discipline on your part. If you threaten a child, mean what you say and be ready to follow through. Because if you don't, they will pick up on that and all of a sudden that threat is not effective. I try to think that through very carefully when I say something because I know that if my child breaks that rule, that I am going to have to keep my word. See, if I don't keep my word, then, then the whole integrity of the process is broken down. And I find this to be, uh, for those with a more tender heart, a more sensitivity, there, there's, there, there is a tendency just to blurt out a threat. If you do this, we're not going to go to vacation this summer. If you do this, we're never coming to Grandma's house again. You know that's not true. You're going to go back to Grandma's. Why in the world would you say that? And I don't know why we do that. I think it's just we all have a tendency to do that. I've done it before. You've done it before. But we need to have consistency. Consistency between parents. And that's when there needs to be communication between spouses. There needs to be communications between parents and grandparents, parents and uncles and aunts. Because whoever's involved in that process, because the rules need to be consistent. It's not fair for kids to, to be held to one standard by one parent, but then not being held to the same standard by the other. And what I've had to do in my life for that, and this has been a give and take with Beth and myself, because there's been some areas that I've been more lax on and she's been stricter. And I might not have wanted to be that strict, but I've supported Beth in that area. And it goes vice versa on that. That we have to support and be that united front. And so there needs to be consistency with our words and consistency between us and our spouse. Number two, this is so important, to use reason and not anger. Reason and not anger. There is nothing that can get under your skin than a smart aleck fifth grader or third grader or seventh grader. And just they say the most vile, disrespectful uh, things and it just rages within you. This rage comes up. And here's the truth is that a lot of things that your kids do, anger is valid and anger is justified. And it's not even wrong to be angry. What is wrong is when you react out of anger. Psalms 4.4 reminds us of this. In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Psalm 4.4. Think about that. Is that if, you, if, if I reflect on the times when I, I reacted too swiftly, or maybe I took my punishment too far, or I was too harsh with my daughter, or too harsh with my son, it's usually because I acted out of anger. And see, once you stop and, and, and you separate yourself from the child and, and the consequence is still going to come, then you remove yourself from the situation. You let your emotions die down and then you begin to give a reasonable punishment, whether it be a, a spanking for a smaller child or whether it be a, a, a taking away from a privilege or, or one of those threats we don't want to make. We, we often make those threats that we're not going to follow up with because we're angry. 
And it's just a discipline of kind of stepping outside of yourself, stepping outside of your emotions. And there's been time, I know some of you are single parents, and so you don't have this luxury, but there's been times when I've just told, told Beth, you need to handle this right now because I had to step away from the situation because it, it upset me so much I wanted to collect myself before I engaged into the discipline. And I just think that's something that we need to be mindful of because the mistakes we make in discipline usually happens when we're angry. And here's the problem is, a lot of times as parents, our anger and our inappropriate response totally overshadows the, whatever our child did that was wrong. All of a sudden, we don't even remember what our child did was wrong because we're so angry and, and we react so harshly that all of a sudden what was initially the child's problem now is our problem. And so we need to use reason and not anger. Number three, clarity. Clarity. Make sure that your child understands why they were punished. What actions that led to this punishment? What is the reason why? What, what, to me, the, the, the saddest part, if, if you remember what I said earlier, that discipline has to have an outcome. Discipline has to have an outcome. And if we are just uh, giving out discipline because we're angry and because it was wrong and, and we've gone through the process and then our child doesn't even realize why they're disciplined, then we've missed the whole point. So we have to either, within that process, make it clear exactly why they are being punished. Let them know, this is what you said, this is what you did, this is the attitude. When I said this, you gave me an attitude, and it came out this way. So they know exactly why, because the only reason we have discipline is because we don't want behavior to be repeated again. Number four, loving words. Loving words. Whenever you give out discipline, within that process, make sure that you verbally affirm your love to your child. You tell them, I love you. I believe in you. It's not enough to think it in your mind. It's not enough to feel it in your heart. Because if you give discipline without joining it with love, then you give a, a totally wrong perception to your child. They need to know, just like the scriptures that we read at the beginning of this teaching, discipline is a manifestation of love. It's not something we enjoy to do. It's not something we, that we do just because we have this positional power. It is something God has assigned us to do, and we do it because we want to see an outcome, a positive outcome in our children's life. And so you have to say, you have to tell the child you love them. You have to reaffirm that, even if they don't receive it. That's where you have to be secure enough. I mean, I, I've told my boys before, you know, I love you so much, and I, I kind of hear this... Mm -hmm kind of growl underneath, you know. Uh, and, and I know that they're not receiving love at that time, but your self-esteem, your self-image and self-esteem has to be strong enough to know that I am telling them I love them, not for me, but for them. And it doesn't matter if I don't get the reciprocal emotions, I don't get the hugs, and, oh, Dad, thank you for spanking me. You're such a great dad. Yeah, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. They're going to be ticked off at you. They're going to be mad. Sometimes they're going to go to bed and, and they're going to go to bed crying and upset um, and you know, in, in negative emotions. The next morning they'll be okay, but you have to tell them you love them. They have to know that. And the last thing, number five, is this physical affection, appropriate physical affection. The same hands that punish and the same mouth that 
gives out punishment has to be the same instrument that give out affection and love. Hug your children. Kiss your children. Let them know that you love them. Couple that with affirming words because discipline without the love just produces rebellion, further rebellion in people. But when you couple discipline with love, with affection, then you will get the outcome you need. You will be expressing the love of the Father to your children and we'll all see what we need. What the Scripture said, uh, delightful children who have, who have been, been disciplined by loving parents. And I know that's what God wants you to do. So these are some things that I want you to carry in your heart and in your mind. And I'm so proud of you tonight because you have your children in God's house tonight. And you're taking your, your children to God's house on Sunday. That is so important. That is such an important component of their spiritual growth. So I want to encourage you, stay faithful at church. Keep bringing them to church. But beyond that, remember, the church is not the primary Christian educator of your children. It's not our responsibility to make sure your kids love Jesus. We're here to help you. We're here to assist you. We're here to support you. We're here on Sundays and Wednesdays and camps and activities and all that. But it's your responsibility. It's not Kenny Indiana's. It's not uh, Pastor David's. It's not my responsibility. Your children, your grandchildren, your nieces and nephews are your responsibility and you're the primary Christian educator in their life. And God's going to help you and give you strength. Could you stand with me? I'm so looking forward to this Sunday. I want to encourage you that, that if you know someone who's not active in church, why don't you bring them this Sunday? This Sunday we're going to have corporate communion together, and I'm going to teach a message that, that I'm really looking forward to out of Mark chapter 2. I'm going to talk about responding appropriately to situations in our life, and I think that it's one thing that as Christians we overlook as we're trying to be salt and light. A couple of things I want to make you aware of. I know Doug Pasoni, you had your uh, healing class last Thursday, or, and you're on tomorrow night also. So that's if you want to find out more about that, let Doug know. Also, we started last Sunday new Christian growth classes from 9.15 to 10 o'clock, and they were greatly successful. We have a men's class that meets every Sunday morning before church. We also have a class taught by Janine Kohler and Jeremy Johnson. I heard great things about both classes, so try that out this Sunday morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, have children, the opportunity you've given us as primary Christian educators in our children's homes. And I pray, God, that you would bless each father, mother, each grandparent, each crucial friend, Lord. I know there's some in here that might not have that um, blood relationship with a child right now, but Lord, you've given them a unique role in a child's life. And I pray, oh God, you would open our eyes on appropriate discipline so that would be manifested in our children's lives. And we love you. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you and Jesus loves you. We'll see you this Sunday.